G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The story. I thought, okay, if the synagogue is closed, where is God? Where can I find God? That is what my aim became. I, I really came a little bit, you could say, possessed about it. I wanted to find God, you know. And then I thought, okay, probably he's gone to the churches. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Today we have part two of our three-part series with Holocaust survivor Nettie sharing her life journey. Last time we heard how her family was arrested by the Nazis after they'd been in hiding not far from where Corey Ten Boom had been living. Now at this point in the story, World War II has ended and Nettie goes on a search for God. We'll also discover what happened to the rest of her family and how she eventually comes to Australia. Nettie is sharing her incredible story with Eric Scadabo in our Melbourne studios and unfortunately she runs into a new form of injustice when she begins to go to school. The hardest thing was that after a few days some of the children came up to me and they said, my mum and dad said that we're not allowed to play with you because you are a Jew. After all you had been through, and yeah. then on the playground. To have See, the whole thing is after the war, there was a lot of anti-Semitism because they blamed the war on the Jews. If we didn't have the Jews in the country, we wouldn't have been in a war. Hmm. You know, so we wouldn't have had, you know, it is, uh, they had to find blame, hmm. and, and that is the blame it was, you know. Mm-hmm. They never thought of Hitler wanting to have a pure race. Mm. I mean, he not only killed the Jews, he also killed people who were were invalids and all that. He killed everyone, you know. And then what happened next? Well, I went to school there until one day a man arrived and she got him in and fed him. He looked horrible. And uh, and I just stood there looking and my aunt said at the time, he, she said, can't you say hello to your dad? It was my father and I didn't recognize him. Oh, he was wow. so, uh, was shocking. Was so, You didn't even recognize no, your own he father? Was, no, it was just like a skeleton walking and it was just terrible. Yeah. What had he been doing? My father was taken to concentration camps, um, but I only found out some years ago uh, where he was in, there was actually Sachsenhausen in uh, Germany. Um, apparently, there was only one way in and one way out was being uh, burnt, you know, and, mm. uh, uh, but he survived it. And, uh, well, at the end of the war, especially... Auschwitz in Poland and Germany, all the camps they had, they wanted to, to show to the world that it wasn't that bad, you know, mm. the, that people didn't get killed in those camps, you know, and the, so they they got all these people out and they, they used to call that the death march and my father was on one of those marches, was taken out of the camp and uh, marched away. But um, at one point he saw a huge ditch and um, he just did his, that he died and let himself roll in that ditch and laid still. And oh, they he kept, pretended to die? And he just, just laid so still that they thought he was dead and, the, mm-hmm. and they just had to march on and left him there. 
and he wasn't dead. He just let himself roll in that ditch. And uh, the Americans who later came through, they found him wandering and uh, they took him in and, um, yeah, and they took him to hit their camps and Cause otherwise slowly he nourished him. To, no, he wouldn't have survived. Oh, so they nourished him? Yeah, until uh, he was well enough to come back. Yeah. And then you met him and didn't even recognize him? No. Wow. So did you then learn what happened to your mother? Not straight away. Um, he went back to Amsterdam and um, stayed with my grandmother, waiting for my mother to come back. But um, we found out that, uh, you know, he did really search among those Jewish people who were still survived or who came were able to survive and come back, you know, from camps. And uh, in the end, I found some men, young men, who had survived and um, they were in the same camp with my mother, mm-hmm. uh, taken out of Auschwitz, also on death marches, and then they were put on, apparently, on cattle trains to go uh, for, for three days to another camp in Germany. And um, they said uh, my mother didn't survive. And um, when they came off the cattle trains at a camp called Flossenburg in Germany, yeah, that is when she collapsed and died straight on the spot. Malnutrition, everything, mm. yeah. So now the war is over. You're reunited with your father. What happened next? Well, my father had was told that seeing that um, he didn't have any responsibilities at that time, that uh, he had to go to Indonesia to fight, and he didn't. He was just so traumatized and didn't want to go. And um, I mean, this uh, is just terrible. It was shocking. Yeah, he, here he was in a concentration yeah. camp and barely survived, and now they want him to serve. Well, they in first. The well, I tell you what, they first wouldn't let him first come into into the Netherlands when he got to the border. Whenever he was dropped off at the Red Cross in Belgium, um, they were the one who had to smuggle him over the border because he didn't have a passport. Unbelievable! Unbelievable. You, you oh. Think of that. Yeah, you can't imagine. You know what people went through. But anyway, that is how he got then to the Hague, and um, because. You know, it's closer to Belgium than Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And um, my uncle gave him some clothes and fed, and uh, then he went back on to Amsterdam. And then when he found out he would have to go to war again, unless he, you know, had a wife and children. And when he found out after. Uh, oh, so a that few was months, the, the kind of ticket to not having to serve in the military. That's right. Was if you had a yeah, wife and children. Yeah. Yeah, if he had responsibilities. But his wife had passed away. Yeah. So when he found out, that is when he approached his secretary. She was his secretary before the war, an Mm. unmarried lady. And she married him for the understanding that he wouldn't have to go then. But of course... So kind of a a marriage of convenience. Yes, it was. It was a marriage of convenience. But it turned out to be inconvenient. Yes, because she really didn't want us and then made up her mind that we were not allowed to see our Jewish family at all. So here you've gone through so much. Yeah. And you finally have your father back, a new Mm. stepmother, Mm. who doesn't really like you too much. Yeah. And what did she do? 
Well, she had to take us in because she'd yeah. married my father, so she had to take us in. But I never remember any time that she would have given us a hug or anything. No affection. No affection whatsoever. And then when we were a little bit older, about nine, ten years old, my brother was nine, I was ten, um, it was on a Sunday, and uh, they said, why don't you go for a walk? And we went for a walk around the block and came home. Oh, you're back already. And so the next week she said, no, we want you to go out of the house by 10 o'clock in the morning and don't come back by 5. Because so just get lost the whole day. Yeah, because Sundays she wanted to have a rest and it was her day. In the middle of the winter. All year through. Just Didn't matter if it, it had to be really, really bad that um, uh, we were told we were allowed to stay home. Hmm. Yeah, she just didn't want us. She just couldn't, yeah. Hmm. My brother and I would walk, and now by that time, first, you know, in the first year after the war when she was married to my father, we first lived into a little place outside Amsterdam and it was actually a condemned house. It was damaged through the war. But that was the only place they could find to live in. Mm-hmm. So you were abandoned each Sunday? Yeah, every Sunday. You know, we, we became really streetwise, I tell you. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and now when we, my brother and I, we had a little family reunion in 2007. And um, my brother and I went to fish it where we lived and mm-hmm. where we had to walk to. We couldn't walk it. We did have to take the train. <laughs> I, I probably were older. But so, the thing is, as children, we walked that. Yeah. And that was amazing. And we both just shook our heads and we said, how could that have happened? We would never have done that to our own children. Mm-hmm. How can you send, you know, kids out at that age? It's just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We we need some hope in your story. It's getting very very sad. <laughs> Finally, what, when do you get a okay. glimmer of hope in the story? Yeah, um, my brother, uh, who couldn't cope at all, because the place he was in hiding wasn't as happy as mine, and uh, he was a very badly damaged child by then, and uh, he couldn't cope at school at all. And one day, he didn't turn up for school. They couldn't find him, mm-hmm. didn't turn up at all. And he, after a day, um, they got the police involved and everywhere where he, you know. And um, after three days, they found out that he'd gone to the wharf in, uh, in Amsterdam, signed himself up as, with the Merchant Navy, and he was on the high seas by then. Oh, wow. At what age? Well, he wasn't even 15. You had to be 15 to be allowed to work, but he wasn't 15 yet. He still, it was right at the, towards the end of school time, beginning of the holidays, school holidays, what is June, Mm. July, August, you know, in Europe. And um, uh, just before school ended, yeah, he uh, had had gone himself and uh, off he went and he wasn't actually 15 until October. So he he just wanted to get away. He wanted to get away. He couldn't cope at all anymore at home. And I was 16 already and uh, and I decided to sit. Uh, Alex wasn't there. I don't have to look after him anymore. We don't have to take care of him. And uh, I left her. 
You're listening to The Story. Today is part two of our conversation with Holocaust survivor, Nettie. We've just heard how, after World War II, she suffered under the harsh treatment of her stepmother. Next, we'll hear how Nettie goes on a search for God and eventually comes to live in Australia when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with part two of Holocaust survivor Nettie sharing her life journey. Before the break, we heard how she was eager to get away from her harsh stepmother, who had married her father shortly after World War II ended. Next, we'll find out about her search for God and how she eventually comes to live in Australia. My stepmother had a younger sister, seven years younger than her, who was completely different than her. She was a lovely person, and she lived in a place right on the other side of Holland from Amsterdam in the west to right near the German border in the mm-hmm. east. And I just said, oh, I want to go there for the holiday. And, uh, well, actually, uh, what happened was through a lot of problems at school and that, and... Um, I wanted to do nursing. I wanted to go to high school, but my stepmother refused to let me go. She, I wasn't good enough for nursing. She said I only was good enough to be a servant, and I had to go to a domestic school, but I hated. And then in the end, I did this, the three years at the domestic school, and I wanted to be a nurse. And my father said in the end, he put his foot down, and he said, okay, and I was allowed to go to high school. But every time I had homework and or I had to do a project with another person, you know, um, my stepmother stepped in and I wasn't allowed to do it. I had to do the housework, I, and things oh, I had wow. to do at home. It was, and at the end of the year, I couldn't even sit the exams because I had nothing to hand in. Mm. So um, I had a nervous breakdown and I refused to get out of bed for six weeks. So in desperation, she said, oh, do you want to go to her sister in in a place called Hangelo in Ophraisel near the German border? And that is where I went, and uh, I was very quickly better by then, and (laughs) away from home, and I I found a job there in the hospital. It was supposed to be just a holiday. Yeah, but but I didn't want to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, you were running away. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I found a job there at the hospital. And, uh, yeah, and that is where I stayed. I got even a room in the nurse's home there, and, uh, yeah, now, uh, I was free. Free at last. <laughs> <laughs> but at that time in your life, you were searching for God. Yes. Well, that is when I took the stock, you could say, you know, you, you think, okay, now I'm able to have my life. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that I thought of, okay, what I've learned is that as Jews, we're supposed to be, God's people. So where is God? Where is he? And I went to the local synagogue, but that was close because in that smaller town, none of the Jews came back. In the whole of Holland, there were a hundred and, I just saw it here, and nationwide, 140,000 Jews, 140,000 Jews. Before the war. Before nationwide. Mm -hmm. And 110,000 were murdered. 
So wow. it's only 30,000 nationwide that have survived. Wow. That's horrendous. They say percentage-wise, you know, in Poland and all the other countries who are so much bigger and have bigger populations, but percentage-wise, the Netherlands apparently lost the most mm -hmm. percentage-wise. So when you were looking to go to the synagogue, yeah. there just wasn't a whole lot of Jewish people left. No. So what did you do? So in my mind, I thought, okay, if the synagogue is closed, where is God? Where can I find God? That is what my aim became. I, mm -hmm. I really came a little bit, you could say, possessed about it. I wanted to find God, mm -hmm. you know. And then I thought, okay, probably he's gone to the churches. Now, in those days, you could see where the churches were because there wasn't a high-rise buildings anywhere, you know, and the, the steeples were quite high. So you could see the steeples, mm -hmm. and I went to all those steeple churches, and I went to those churches and I found so dead, so dead. They just all look if they'd been to a funeral. It was just Very horrible, somber. so somber. And I thought, nah. Probably God doesn't exist anymore because I had in this picture in my mind that people who meet with God would be happy. And I couldn't find that. And I just gave up. I gave up altogether. And um, then it was Christmas time, I remember, and the girl who had her room next to me, she said, oh, what are you doing over Christmas? You're going home. And I wasn't going to go home. And I had to work anyway one of the days. And uh, she said, oh, she said, would you like to come with me to church for the Christmas service? And I just said, oh, what's, you know, church do you go to? And she said, a Baptist church. Now, I hadn't been to a Baptist church. Apparently, those churches didn't have big steeples, so I never knew that it existed. Oh, that oh. is how it happened. And I thought, okay. Um, I was very sceptical, but I thought, well, I've got nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. So I went with her, and that is where the people were so friendly, and it was just amazing. And so many young people that came up wanted to know who I was, and they invited me straight away. You know, come to my house. We we're doing Christmas carol singing, and you know, and it was just amazing. So you found the joy. <laughs> I found the joy, and because they all went to church, I just went along when I didn't have to work, just to be with those young people. I made friends, you know, mm -hmm. and that was my whole aim. I never understood any of the messages. Uh, I thought probably. God is in this church because people are happy and really whatever was said on the pulpit never reached me you know mm -hmm. I just turned off that was not my thing but because I thought I was in a place where God probably was and I'm happy and I made friends and uh, and then I met my husband through the youth group mm -hmm. there um, did he know you were Jewish no I told him I told him, I to, and when I got to know his mum, I told him, and she was the most beautiful Christian lady you could have. She was so excited. She said, I've got one of God's children coming to my house. He's, you know, he's dating well, with my sons. That was and, not your and, usual uh, reaction that you not had Not at getting. all. <laughs> <laughs> I Quite the contrast. I didn't know. <laughs> well, let's fast forward to your new life here in Australia. Here in Australia. Yeah, well, first I came to Australia and um, 
when we had our first child, he was born very sickly and um, it was spina bifida and brain damage and he lived for five months. So it was very sad and it was very hard. And um, But somehow I didn't blame God about that. It, it just, you know, one of those things in life and mm. um, I was very upset and, and that. But... Then later on, we had um, I had Margaret, my eldest daughter, and um, thankful she was happy. And but um, through work, we moved to the country, and um, in Kerrang up in Northern Victoria. What year was this about? This is uh, early nineteen sixty. Okay. And I had and during that time, I had a speaker by the name of the Reverend John Ridley from Sydney, and he spoke. He was a lovely man, and he preached the gospel so clear, mm. and he spoke with a lisp because he had been fighting in the war, and he had a, a bullet through his mouth. Oh, really? And it had healed, and they had looked after him, and he was on fire for the Lord, and he really spoke so clearly about the gospel and that I went up to him afterwards to talk to him, and and he led me to the Lord to accept, oh, explain wow. to who Jesus was, why he came to this earth to mm. die for our sins, and I had such joy, and you know, it's just amazing. And a few days later, when our pastor came to counsel me, because you know that was all part of the thing, kind of uh, as the follow up, yes, as a follow up, mm-hmm. and uh, he. You know, he wanted to interview me. I asked him, you know, uh, how long I'd been out of Holland and why I'd come. And I told him and told him I was Jewish and mm-hmm. I lost. And then he said to me, well, my dear, he says, now you're a Christian. You're not Jewish anymore. And I was mm-hmm. that stunned that I couldn't believe why somebody could tell you that. I mean... How can you just say you're not Jewish? I lost my whole family, mm-hmm. and I, only a few survived. And that was just the hardest thing. And mm-hmm. I decided I never say anything to anybody, and I never told, not even my children. Nobody knew. I so, came to Melbourne. I, we lived in Melbourne. Uh, I mean, after we were for nearly ten years in Kering, and then we came to Melbourne. It just part of the ch- big church I never never told anybody so the pastor uh, he was well meaning he was well, had no idea but had no because idea because he had he was good in the bible studies you know and explained everything but he couldn't see it he couldn't yeah. see well i mean if you were a muslim and accepted jesus as savior you would be a former muslim you would yeah. no longer be Muslim, or the same as Buddhist. Yeah, but that or, is a religion. Exactly. So but, uh, Jewish Jew is, is unique. It is a, a people that God has chosen. Right. It's your ethnicity. Uh, yes. Yes. So that you're, you're never going to stop being ethnically No, you can't. Yeah, you can't. It's who you are. No. And why would I lose my whole family if you know, for what? So he didn't realize, but he was really hurting you. Yes. And he was a good man, and he was a good Bible teacher, but he just didn't understand. That was part two of our three-part conversation with Holocaust survivor Nettie. 
sharing her life journey. And once again, it was heartbreaking to hear how, after all she had been through during the war, she went on to be treated harshly yet again, this time by her stepmother. However, it was great to hear how she finally finds joy when she comes to Australia and accepts Jesus as her saviour and Messiah. But that is not the end of the story. As we just heard, she felt she had to hide her Jewish ethnicity, even after she became a follower of Jesus. Next time, we'll find out how she eventually finds a place where she can feel at home and understood while both believing in Jesus and being Jewish. Well, thanks for joining us for part two of Nettie's story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, inviting you to join us again next time for the conclusion of our conversation with Nettie. And as always, I encourage you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. My eldest daughter, she was about 13, 14, and she said all of a sudden to me one day, Mum, why don't you ever talk about your parents? You know, and I said, Margaret, we are Jews. Most of our family all got killed in the war. We don't talk about it, and I don't want you to say anything about it. Nobody's allowed to know. Because I was frightened that something would happen to my children. That's Holocaust survivor Nettie sharing how she felt the need to hide her Jewish ethnicity, even after she became a follower of Jesus. We'll find out how she eventually finds a place where she can feel at home while both believing in Jesus and being Jewish next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.